0: Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church, I think it is so important that we are more than just a group of people who get together to listen to sermons and that the shared life we have together is a massive part of what it is to be followers of Jesus and to be a church family and Along those lines, I just want to encourage you as 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 a pastor in this church, to take these opportunities. We're fasting and praying. In October, It is is such a powerful way to unite our hearts, to pray with our bodies as well as our words, to say we want to push back against the brokenness of our world, against the pain of this year in particular, and say we're looking for healing, we're looking for justice, we're looking for an awakening to God's love. And uh, we have an opportunity to do that together. So if you've never fasted before, we have resources on the website to help you sort of get into that. It's not as daunting as it may seem, um, but it is a powerful way for us to join our hearts together. So we fast and pray. Pray with us uh, during this month as we lead up to the election. The other thing is, um, w- Alpha doesn't work unless you invite your friends. Um, and I know there's a risk there. There's awkwardness. There's sort of a relational capital that you're, you're putting at risk by by inviting someone into Alpha. What if it's weird? What if they don't like it? You know, they're they're not someone I've, I would have ever thought would would believe like I believe or whatever. But. Alpha is so powerful because it creates this space of hospitality that's like this little sanctuary in our very busy world where we have to go around with our armor on and our masks on and just getting tasks done. And it just sets aside a little time where you can drag out what's really going on in your heart and say, this question has always bothered me. I I like this about the the idea of God, but I've never understood this. It's just to get at whatever questions, whatever doubts, whatever fears. And it's such a safe place to do that. There's no question that's off limits. No one's going to like... You know, get after you or, or be negative to you because you think a, a particular way about something. We just want to hear from one another. And so, such rich and meaningful conversations takes, that take place in, in that Alpha setting. Some of the richest spiritual experiences of my life have happened in Alpha. But it doesn't work unless you take that little risk to say to your friend, listen, hey, we have this little course that... that um, that that we're offering. You can do it online. It's never been easier to invite someone. It's never been easier to attend. So I just want to ask you, will you pray and see if God brings someone to mind or a few people to mind that you could take the risk to invite to Alpha, for this next round. that We're having two of them, as, as Elisa mentioned, that are beginning later this month. And we, we, we need people. Um, and specifically, it's designed for people who don't believe. So if you know anyone in New York City who doesn't already believe in God or Jesus in particular, um, <laughs> find them, invite them to Alpha, and uh, it'll make the discussion that much more rich. I think one of the reasons I love Alpha is because it's such an intersection of stories. It's such a place where uh, we... Uh, we get to hear someone's life and where they are come from and, 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 and all the, the sort of different streams that have made them who they are. Great stories help us make sense of our lives. It's part of what it is to be a human being. It's in, in order to understand our world, we tell stories. Um, and certain stories get elevated depending on how useful they are for, for shining a light on our human experience. I, I think every one of my kids at some point, I have told them the story of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, not because it's a terribly like, uh, nuanced or detailed st- story, but it just like, makes the point. Listen, we love you. If something's really wrong, we want to rush to help you. But if you uh, abuse that by you know, pretending something's wrong when it isn't, it really, it really hurts the, the relationship. It really hurts this sort of ecosystem that we're trying to nurture here of, of love and care and protection. So the boy who cried wolf sort of elevates and tells that story and makes it simple for a five-year-old to grasp. I think probably around five, I told all of my kids that story. So the great stories, the ones that really work in helping us understand our experience, they get told over and over again. It's why uh, Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Mis, um, it, apart from being a phenomenal novel, gets revived as a musical over and over again in our, in our city um, because it, it helps us understand some crucial aspects of what it is to be a human being. I remember coming as a 16-year-old to New York City with my family and like, feeling the electricity of the city for the first time and, and going around doing the classic sort of New York city tourist things and going and sitting in uh Les Mis and seeing this musical for the first time. And just like the jaw dropping experience. I think I looked over and like caught my dad weeping. Um, maybe the one of the first times I've ever, I had ever seen him like shed tears. It's like such a powerful story. And, um, there are scenes that come back to me over and over again from, from, from the story of, of, of uh, here's what human nature looks like. Here's the nature of redemption. Here's the nature of forgiveness. And then our subject for, for, for today, the idea of mercy. So if you haven't seen Les Mis, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil a tiny bit of it, but listen, it's honestly been out for a long time. You're a touch late. It's okay. I think there's movies, um, you know, uh, you, you can catch up. But as the story begins, Jean Valjean has spent 19 years of hard labor in a prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Um, he gets out and he decides he can't live this way any, any longer. And so he breaks his, patro- his, his parole uh, and, and we, we see him on the run. Um, He ends up being shown tremendous kindness and hospitality by this bishop who takes him in as he's sort of on on the run, Um, but he makes this choice. And actually, you know, whether or not he deserved the 19 years of hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread, he ends up stealing from this bishop who's shown him kindness and compassion. He steals the man's silver, the most valuable thing he has a part of his family's inheritance. So he's on the run, he ends up getting arrested, he gets brought back to the bishop. It's it's you know, he's caught red-handed, they pull the silver out of his bag, and there's this moment where you're like, "Oh my gosh, this man was free and now he's about to go back into these horrible conditions because he made this ter- terrible choice." Choice. And the bishop in this unbelievable moment shows him such immense mercy and grace. He defends him before the authorities. He actually says, oh, you only took this silver. I meant for you to take this as well. And he gives him more than what he has stolen. And it sort of like wrecks your heart to see this mercy expressed. I, I remember growing up in church and trying to understand the difference between mercy and grace. And I'm actually not sure these are the best definitions ever, but that I, I heard that mercy was not getting the punishment that you deserved. And grace um, was carrying away the blessings of that mercy in freedom. And Jean Valjean experiences both of those realities in this moment. He had committed a crime. He had taken advantage of this man's kindness. Um, even if he felt like on some level he had the right to because of the harshness of, of the circumstances and the turns that his life had taken, still he violates some essential reality um, in this this man's care. And then the bishop shows him mercy and it changes Jean Valjean's life. Um, The bishop ends up telling him, listen, I've ransomed your life for God. Go and live in response to this mercy. And it's such a powerful scene. It comes back to my mind over and over again in in my life. I've, I've, I've recalled it, but it also brings out some challenging aspects of how we understand mercy. The first is, quite simply, that there are things we need to experience mercy for. And and most of us, maybe we sense that intuitively, maybe through our lived experience we get at that. Um, But if you just pay attention to sort of like how we're marketed to as a society or like pop-level psychology uh, and philosophy, you might get the idea that there's actually nothing that you need mercy for. There's nothing that we need forgiveness for, that sin is like an outdated idea that we just don't have any use for anymore. Basically, you just do you. And don't worry about what anybody else thinks or feels about it. We, we've elevated self-expression to this place of ultimate authority, this sort of radical individualism. And there's, a, there's an appeal to it because it sounds like empowerment. Um, but in the end, we, we, we realize it, it sort of breaks down throughout the level of relationship. If you if you put self at the highest place, it sort of cuts off the possibility of love. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually serve us for building a life that is abundant, that is truly meaningful. We need organizing principles as human beings for how we're gonna live in a shared communal way together. We need a relational center. We need, I would say, a framework of love that guides how we're going to live our life. And you have to make some serious choices about what that framework is going to be. Something that's going to say, this is what makes something right and this is what's going to make something wrong. And no matter what end of the religious or political spectrum you're on, you have something that you think is really, really wrong or really wrong over here and then really, really right and really, really right. And and, and there's some way that you arrived at those guiding principles, at that relational center. Last week we had the beatitude, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Right, that you're longing for things to be right in the world according to these guiding principles, and you actually can't have mercy. Right, That story with Jean Valjean and the bishop breaks down if there's no sense of justice, no sense of righteousness that has been violated so that the mercy can be expressed. If there's nothing higher than individual self-expression, then our justice begins to erode. So does the potential for mercy. If we only exist in like a framework of evolutionary psychology, right, that we just sort of randomly ended up here and we're just passing on our DNA to the next generation, we sort of do ba- you know, bottom out at a survival of the fittest kind of level. Like you do what you have the power to do to someone else and mercy isn't taken into the equation. But Jean Valjean's story points us in the direction that yes, certain things are wrong but also that we can miss them. We can misapply justice. We can misapply righteousness. Jean Valjean's first punishment was unjust because it was too harsh. But then also his release by the bishop after he steals the silver is also basically unjust because where Jean Valjean had to absorb the cost of the brokenness of his society for stealing this loaf of bread and ends up in this unbelievably unjust punishment, the bishop absorbs the cost in the story where he, he gives, extends mercy to Jean Valjean. This is the bishop's expression of mercy, even though it's, it's not technically just, is that he has absorbed the justice himself and rooted in love has been able to offer mercy. So the story shows us that there are certain things that we need mercy for. Secondly, it shows us that the wrong we do tears us apart at, 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 at a significant uh, level, actually multiple levels of our life. The, the biblical frame speaks of this idea of sin, which even if our world finds intimidating or maybe outdated on some level, it it really does a tremendous job of explaining how things actually work in our world. And and you're going to be, it's a real challenge to find something that does a better job of explaining the reality of our world. Um, It's, you know, the, the biblical doctrine of sin certainly influenced Victor Hugo's story, but it shows us sin cutting against our nature, cutting against the fabric of our society, cutting against our relationships, cutting against even our own conscious you see Jean Valjean wrestling with that throughout the story and, and this this it works in a system where certain things are, are agreed upon like there's a certain base level understanding of, of what is justice of what is right and wrong and and it also calls into uh, to attention the relational cost, the relational pain of, of sin, even among someone who's basically a stranger, Jean Valjean and, and the bishop. There's this, this reality that our human community is being violated in some way, and it also cuts against Jean Valjean's co- uh, conscience. The way we talk about it, if you've been around TGC for a while, and we talk all the way back to the, to the root of the story in Genesis, is that when sin enters the story, essentially it's it's a it's a, a break with God, like you have this God who, who is the source and substance of life, who is this uh, governing, defining reality of our world. And to break with that God is, is to bring brokenness into every level, right? When you have a brokenness in our relationship with God, it affects our, our identity, our self-understanding. It affects our relationships with other people. You see this right in the beginning of the Genesis story. It affects our society. Sin wrecks our life at each of these levels. And so redemption, mercy, has to address all of them. It has to address all of these areas where brokenness is seen. So mercy is not ignoring um, the, the, the realities of, of justice and it's not shoving them aside and pretending like they don't exist and just being like uber tolerant no matter what someone does. Actually, mercy is only experienced as mercy when it comes on the foundation of, of, of justice and righteousness. and And Victor Hugo is a master storyteller for a bunch of different reasons, but one is he doesn't just give us mercy from one angle. There's another key character in the story that we have to consider. And, uh, and that's Javert, right? Who is this ruthless legalistic police officer who pursues Jean Valjean throughout the entire story for breaking his per- parole. And for Javert, you just, you, you see that his obsession with the rule of law and, and, and power has, has consumed his life. He's absolutely compelled, uh, compelled by it, but glaringly compelled without mercy. And then in a surprise turn, I won't spoil the entire story for you, although I've gotten close. Um, uh, Javert ends up a prisoner of Jean Valjean. And so Jean Valjean now has the power to to decide what's going to happen to him. And in this powerful turn, uh, basically him making good on, on what the bishop had called him to way back in that first expression of mercy, Jean Valjean lets him go. And it absolutely fries Javert's circuits. He just can't, he can't fathom uh, what's happening. He, He can't believe that this one who he's hated for so long has now turned and shown him mercy. And he realizes the power of it. So much so that he knows he can't, he can't, he's not willing to readjust the framework, the guiding principles of his life and let this mercy seep all the way down into his heart and change him. So he ends up ending his own life. He's rather than being changed by mercy, he just he just refuses to accept it. His unwillingness to give mercy leaves him in a place where he cannot receive it. It's this. It's this powerful story. And certainly there are extreme examples, but um, it it shows us the power of mercy at work in someone's life, either to transform and change them or to harden them. Each time we we go through Alpha, one of the things I I love about it is I end up watching all the same videos, and many of them I can I can quote down down to each section. Um, But there's a few stories that always get me, and one that always gets me um, is is the story of Corey Timboom. And if you're not familiar with her life, she and her family endured the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And afterward, after uh, uh, Cory Timboom's family ha- has, has died, she ends up being a minister of the gospel and going around preaching forgiveness um, all over the world. And there's one particular incident where one of the officers that had worked in the concentration camp, someone who had actually done harm to her and her family, comes into one of these meetings and actually comes up to Cory Timboom after she's speaking about forgiveness to ask her for forgiveness. And um, there's the recording of her actual voice in the video, and it's absolutely uh, so powerful. It brings chills to me every time I hear it. And she just says so honestly, I could not forgive him. I could only hate him. And she talks about seeing the pain that her sister went through, that her family went through. And you absolutely can relate to what she's saying. I could not forgive him. I could only hate him. And you think it's like that's where the recording is going to end, but there's a beat that happens. And then she says, but God could. And it's just like, oh, it hits you so powerfully. The recording of her voice each time brings me to tears. And she says, you never experienced such love as you forgive your enemies. And her voice is trembling and you know it has the integrity of the power of lived experience that she's offering something forgiveness for something none of us would want to forgive someone for. It's almost unfathomable, but it's an expression of mercy that's very much like the expression of God's mercy in our world, the expression we see in the person of Jesus. It's almost unfathomable, but the reality is we need to call ourselves to it. We need to talk about it because our world needs it more than ever. Don't you get the sense that if we don't rediscover mercy, we are going to tear each other apart? If our online conversations alone are any indication of where we are at in relationship to mercy, it seems that we are dangerously low on the essentials of what it takes to be human beings to one another, right? It's it's like we don't possess the wisdom to lead ourselves towards healing, towards abundant life. This is always true, but right now it feels particularly important to say you have to be so careful about who you allow to disciple you, who you allow to spiritually form you, who you allow to give you a vision for what life is really all about and how that life should be lived. And let me tell you this, if you don't think you're being discipled, then you're ignoring a crucial reality that you've already accepted a system of formation in your life. Someone is discipling you. You are being spiritually formed. And Jesus is coming in and saying, listen, mercy is essential to our lives. It is essential to the kingdom of God. He's trying to offer us apprenticeship in the realities of the kingdom of God. And he's holding up and saying, one essential component to this is mercy. And we need to look at our world and how we're actually really living and say, is mercy anywhere to be found in our interactions with one another in this particular moment? Blessed, happy, fortunate, flourishing are the merciful. What are you relying on for happiness to make you fortunate, to make you blessed? Jesus. Kingdom is upside down in so many ways. You know, like our our culture almost tells us like, don't let anybody get over on you at all. Don't let anyone get away with anything, right? We have this cancel culture mentality that people have to pay for what they've done wrong. And Jesus is saying, listen, a, a key to flourishing is the ability to experience and to give mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. There's like an inhale and an exhale reality to this mercy. When you've tasted mercy, then you are able to show mercy. The true expression of experiencing forgiveness, right? For for Jean Valjean or for that officer standing in front of Corey Timboom, the true expression of experiencing forgiveness is not simply that you feel grateful. Even even deeply grateful, it's that you also become one who forgives. And that's what Cory Timboom so powerfully embodies is she realizes the forgiveness she's received from God, she can bend towards another human being, even one who had done such atrocious things in her personal life. The scriptures and therefore God's way of orienting us to the world is, is also storytelling. God doesn't just give us lists of principles. There are lists of principles in in the 66 books of the scripture, but they come to us in a narrative form. And in the heart of Israel's story, in the heart of of Torah, is this revelation of a God who who is introduced to Moses right in the burning bush as as I am who I am. And we come to understand this God in so many ways. He's a deliverer. He's a guide. He's a provider. um, He's a healer. He's a savior. He's a father. All these names of God that come through Israel's story, right? Israel's coming to grips with who is this Yahweh, but at the very center of the revelation of who Yahweh is, is we have uh, this God is expressed in mercy. The Shema, the most repeated uh, sections of Scripture in the Torah, and it's pulled from a couple of different places, but Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation." We have this this picture of a God who's saying, I want you to know me as a God of absolute mercy inside a framework of righteousness and justice. Ultimately, like what we sow in the world, we do reap in the world unless something intervenes in that. And what intervenes is God himself in mercy to step in and keep the confidence Consequences from utterly plowing over us, he steps in to, and gets steamrolled himself. Literally goes to the cross, uh, ultimately, in the, in the fullness of the narrative to express his mercy. But even all the way back, as God is first introducing himself to his people, who do you, want, who do you, who do you know me to be? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The central reality of God is mercy. Mercy in a framework of, of justice where right and wrong really matters. But this is the organizing principle. This is the relational center of our ethics. This is God is the starting point and definer of reality. This is what you get as you really dive into to- Torah, is you don't just have reality that's just magically shown up here. It's come from somewhere. Where did this come from? You have to have some explanation for where our reality come from. It c- comes from. And Torah says that this God, this relational being has has defined reality for us and that that our, our 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 world our life is expressed in our alignment or our misalignment with reality as expressed from flowing from the character of God. The creation narrative right is, is not about Scientifically defining exactly how the world was created, it is showing that the nature of the world flows from the nature of God and the, and the, and the image of God in human beings and the image of God's you know uh, glory of God shown in creation. So we have this reality that shows. Shows up over and over again in the narrative. When you're in alignment, when you're living in relational connection to this God, there's a certain type of life that flows from it. And it it is a flourishing human life. The Ten Commandments are an example of this. If you want to have a human society that works well, you're going to need God at the center of that society. That's what the Ten Commandments say. Now, let's say you don't believe that. You get down a little further, listen, don't kill each other. Hey, If you want to have a flourishing human society, don't steal from one another. Don't don't, don't break your covenants with one another and take someone else's spouse. And all these things that fragment and disintegrate and break apart our relationships, we see over and over again as the Scriptures show us what an aligned picture of life in reality In connection with this relational God looks like. The kingdom of God, the Beatitudes, is a picture of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. It's a, later in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of someone's life. When God is at the center of their life, what comes out? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So, when we're aligned, this is what life looks like. The Ten Commandments, uh, life in the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, the fruit of the spirit. When we're misaligned, when we're disconnected, what happens? It's so dramatic that it, it, it's described as death. Right, to, to, to part from the source of life is, is natural and spiritual death. So we experience the spiritual death first. Um, the wages of sin is death. So this is where injustice, this is where selfishness at the center of our lives, this is where violence comes from. It is to be misaligned with the natural and spiritual laws that flow from God's character being expressed in our world. So you, you, you break the law of gravity, you experience the consequences. You ignore the law of inertia, you experience the consequences. You emotionally, you emotionally, relationally, communally violate the, the, the principles of reality governing the world, and you experience spiritual consequences as well. Lying tears at the fabric of relationship. It damages the soul. It hurts society. It does something to our shame mechanism in our hearts. We experience God's self, others' world, brokenness, misalignment, spiritual death at every one of those levels. Because here's the thing. None of us can stay aligned. None of us can can live like a, a perfect life, the holy way of God, life. No matter how much we hunger and thirst for it, the last beatitude. The reality is we have this 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 sin. And I like how Dane Ortland s- says this: We don't just occasionally slip into the passions of our flesh. We lived in those passions. It was the air we breathed. What water is to fish, inordinate ugliness of desire was to us. We inhaled rejection of of God, and we exhaled self destruction and well deserved judgment. Beneath our sm- Smiles at the grocery store and cheerful greetings to the mailman. We were quietly enthroning self and eviscerating our souls of the beauty and dignity and worship for which they were made. Sin was not something we lapsed into. It defined our moment-by-moment existence at the level of deed, word, thought, and yes, even desire. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We not only lived in sin, we enjoyed living in sin. We wanted to live in sin. It was our coddled treasure, our golem's ring, our settled delight. In short, we were dead, utterly helpless. That's what His mercy healed. We lose the weight and power of mercy when we ignore the reality of justice, when we ignore the reality of righteousness, when we ignore the reality of the brokenness of our world, but also our participation in that brokenness, our need for mercy. But then we are so fortunate, blessed, in the words of the Beatitude, that God is merciful because mercy is what our world needs. It is what all of us needs. We have all fallen short. But we can all receive his extravagant grace. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in love and faithfulness. This is how God has presented himself to us. Mercy is who God is. Dane Orland, one more time. He is a fountain of mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our our way through life cause his fortune to grow, grow greater, not less. How can that be? Because mercy is who he is. If mercy was something he simply had, while his deepest nature was something different, that there would be a limit on how much mercy he could dole out. But if he is essentially merciful, then for him to pour out mercy is for him to act in accord with who he is. It is simply for him to be God. When God shows mercy, he is acting in a way that is true to himself. And that's, that's how we get at the essential nature of how God is going to repair the world. This God who reveals himself to Israel as mercy, expresses himself to the world in salvation through the person of Jesus. His plan to repair the world is to know that we can't be aligned perfectly with reality that, that accords back to his character, but it's to, it's to heal us anyway, to step in and to take the consequences on himself. He... he And this comes to us through the person of Jesus. I want you to think about the authority of Jesus, even in just beginning the sermon this way. The authority to confer these promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can he give that? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How is it his to give? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is saying, I have come, I can, I have the authority to repair the world because of how I have treated the world in mercy, in this repairing salvation of the gospel. The thing that, pe- that shocks people over and over again about Jesus is that He's forgiving sins. Right? Remember this: the friends lower their pal uh, through the roof on, onto the mat. He's paralyzed before Jesus, and and everyone's like, "Is Jesus going to, you know, heal him?" And Jesus forgives his sins, and everyone's shocked because when we sin, we're uh, our offenses against God, and here is Jesus letting this man off the hook for his sins. And then he does heal him and, and, and stands him up. By, but the authority of Jesus' mercy to forgive us of sins, Hebrews 7 sums it up. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he is tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus gives us these, these uh, principles in the beatitude, he reinforces them over and over again. We have these stories where someone experiences profound forgiveness in one of Jesus' parables. And they turn around and they, sh- they, they, they refuse to show forgiveness to someone who, owe, who owes them money. And like there's this, this discord. And, and, and sometimes people make the mistake of thinking Jesus is teaching that you, in order to receive God's forgiveness you have to go around giving forgiveness to other people, and that's to get it out of order slightly. Basically, what Jesus is saying is the reality of grace doesn't mean that we forgive so we can be forgiven. It means that we can be sure that we have been forgiven, that we have come to know mercy by the fact that we show mercy. A refusal to show mercy cut someone off from the inhale-exhale experience of mercy. A refusal to show mercy cuts someone off from the experience of receiving mercy. It leaves us in this place of Javert where we're not letting it seep down into our hearts. We're not letting us change us at a fundamental level. It's like if we're unwilling to express it, it's sort of a clue we need to go back to the start and say, have we even experienced it? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we, we meet the reality of this Beatitudes as all of them in the person of Jesus. That is where this whole thing is centered. God is mercy. God is expressed in mercy in salvation through the person of Jesus. So the thing I want to call us to as we close, two very simple things. One is for us as apprentices of Christ to practice mercy. And the second is to count on mercy for ourselves. So practicing mercy is to get out of this sort of inflamed place of reaction that so many of us live in our world and move to, even if it's just for a few seconds, a place of reflection. And I wanna ask you to, to, to take a few of these tools to say, how do you uh, keep yourself from responding uh, in inflamed reaction when someone does wrong to you? I want to give you a couple of tools. One is just take a breath and remember this person is made in the image of God. Take a breath and remember God loves this person more than you can possibly fathom. So much so that Jesus died for this person. And then I want you to remember how much you have been forgiven. And maybe you can do that in three seconds and it will change how you react to someone who's just done wrong to you to remember they're made in God's image. God loves them more than you could possibly fathom and how much you have been forgiven. That's to practice mercy. In our online interactions, in our interactions with our family members, you have a friend, and you can't believe they hold a political viewpoint that's so uh, opposed to yours, and you just want to basically like cancel them or say I want to have nothing to do with you. And this, in this year in particular, I can't even deal. Right? And to remember that person's made in God's image, that 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 per, God loves that person more than I can fathom. Christ died for that person. Remember how much I have been forgiven, and then practice mercy practice kindness. To do that, you're going to have to count on mercy yourself because you're going to fall short, right? If there's anything we know from our story as human beings, it's that we're going to fall short, right? And then the accusations can play like a ticker tape in our mind They can wear us down. Our insecurities and fears get ramped up. That, that spirit of accusation from the enemy gets, gets trumpeted in our hearts and we, we're crushed under the weight of shame. You're going to have to count on mercy for yourself. Remember, you're made in the image of God. Remember how much you are loved more than you could possibly fathom. Remember that Christ has died for you. And if you can't remember that, go read Romans 8. If you can't remember that, go read Ephesians 2 and 3. Find these places that you can speak the gospel to yourself because we have to be those who practice mercy and we have to be those who count on mercy. And the central place we go to is the person of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Our world is in a place that desperately needs mercy. Agents of mercy, agents of kindness, agents of forgiveness, agents who catch someone absolutely red-handed and say, Oh, you forgot this. I wanted to bless you with this as well. Why don't you come, to, uh, come over and share a meal with me? Why don't, why, why don't we talk about this? Why don't I show you love? My prayer is that, that we would experience the ministry of the mercy of the Holy Spirit this morning. That is the only way we will embody the forgiveness and mercy and kindness at the heart of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, would you speak mercy to our hearts? Would you quiet the voice of accusation, God? The shame that piles up on our hearts. Would you help us to remember the message of the cross, that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. God, we we declare in faith that you are better at redeeming than we are at sinning. That your blood is better at making us clean than we are at, 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 at absolutely running back to, to our, our, our old habits and old patterns. We take the promise of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from, from the love we have found in Christ Jesus. That you are mercy, that your salvation expresses mercy. God, would you, would you speak to us now? Would you convince us by your spirit of your incredible mercy so that we can be agents of your mercy in the world? Heal our hearts. Heal our minds. Heal our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.